And welcome, friends, to the Alta4.co podcast. I am your host, Brandon. And today's title of the show is Win the Battle, Lose the War. So, um, before I get started into everything, this is my moment to just talk. And so, I thought that I would just take a few minutes uh, to talk about where we're going here in terms of Alta 4. Um, I notice that my weeks get a little formulaic. Um, clearly, there's the podcast on Monday, but with the review on book review on Friday, and then I have three days in the middle to sort of fill in, as as it were. The topics tend to be, I think, a little formulaic too. So um, there are some changes coming. I mean, in order for me to really change um, what I write about, it really requires me to change what I do and how I live my life. But um, there'll be something new tomorrow uh, that I write about something new and something old. Uh, I'm going to go back into techno junk here. And so, um, anyway, if there are things that, uh, that interest people for me to talk or write about, then, um, I would surely like to dive headlong into those things. Otherwise, hopefully you don't feel like things are too repetitive on the front of, um, what I'm doing on a day in day out basis. I know I struggle sometimes. I feel like, oh, well, you know, there's a, a one one about cooking, one about uh, some kind of project, one about something around the range or some other kind of hobby or cleaning up, which is basically where I'm at. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm sort of in that rut, if you will, is, is because I'm spending most of my free time... St- um, cleaning up still. I mean, I, I have a long ways to go and I have some projects thrown in the middle of that. And so, um, it's probably not going to be done anytime soon. But anyway, so I, uh, apologize for that, but, uh, I'll keep trying to do new things. And like I said, I got some, some new hobbies <laughs> coming if as if I needed something else to do but uh, they're experiments uh, how about that and that's the way I like to look at things it's hard to uh, experiment when you're jumping all over the place you really have to have known data and then make changes from there and and that's what I feel like I do but um, anyway let's get into it today so how did I come up with this headline where are we going what's going on um, I was reading uh, I saw a headline when I was reading the news and it was titled finally some good news on the war on terror. And I wasn't particularly interested in the news, but I was like, I wonder what, how they're going to spin this because, um, you know, I, I, I feel like at least the war on terror has been an absolute abject failure. Um, and I'm going to get into some of that here later today. But um, as far as I know, the war on terror, as it were, is over. That doesn't mean we've gotten rid of the Patriot Act, or that doesn't mean that um, you know there aren't evildoers out there in the world, but the active war on terror seems to have gone away. Now, is that 100% true? Probably not. I think, again, when I provide some of the data here, even with the story, um, the war on terror is not over. It's just not in the headlines. And so uh, I was interested in this article because I wanted to see how they were going to spin whatever they were going to talk about. So let me tell you about that. It turns out that the U.S. has been backing some rebels in Somalia and for those of you old enough to remember, like me, um, you know, the U.S. was in Somalia in the early 1990s under the Bill Clinton administration. Uh, I'm sure you probably, I mean, the most famous thing that happened was the movie Black Hawk Down, <laughs> but uh, the U.S. was not able to persuade the warlords, as they were termed in the news, to turn a new leaf and um, embrace 
embrace uh, democracy, but the U.S. essentially said gave up and said this can't be changed or whatever. We're gonna we're gonna lose too many people trying to fix this, and so um, it all plays a role in really how how we got to uh, having needing to have a war on terror in the first place. And I'll save my opinions for later, but. Anyway, so the U.S. has been backing some rebels in Somalia, and apparently um, this is working because the locals are fed up with the ruling leaders, which they termed as ISIS. And the reason they're fed up is that apparently there's excessive taxation without results. And they gave some examples, and I actually didn't read the story super closely. I, I read the first part of it, and I kind of scanned through the, the last half because it was actually quite a bit longer than I expected. But um, they were giving some examples where they were saying you uh, farmers were required to provide three cows to the government as part of their tax burden and they're like this is ridiculous you know we we don't eat three cows why are, why am i having to give you three cows and so um the basically the people got fed up and started changing allegiances between this isis based government or warlords or whatever they are to now this new rebel faction and us is claiming some sort of victory here because there is um, resources, and who knows exactly what that means, but it's probably CIA and, and um, contractors and other um, less than visible operations going on, providing weapons, money, and all that sort of stuff. And so the ultimate spin on the story was that the rebels were making tactical advances because the population's motivated to do so, and they're driving their um, their uh, their enemies. That's not the word I wanted to use, but I couldn't find it. They're driving their enemies back to the southern part of the country and the way this article was painting everything was it's only a matter of time before uh, they're completely defeated and everybody's super happy, right? And so this was the, quote, good news on the war on terror. Uh, when I read the story, this phrase came to mind, this phrase that the podcast is about, which is, win the battle, lose the war. And it often comes to my mind when we're talking about uh, these sorts of topics. So I decided to do a little bit of research into that phrase itself. And my initial assumption was that the phrase was based on Sun Tzu's Art of War, but I was actually wrong. Now, that's something that I haven't actually read. It's it's on my radar, and it may become a book that... Um, I review here after I get through. Uh, there's there's at least one more book I have in my hands that I haven't started reading yet. But I do have an interest in it because it's deemed one of the classics and I think that there certainly are lessons to be learned from the book itself. So uh, anyway, I thought it was from The Art of War, but I was actually wrong. And when I looked it up on Wikipedia... The phrase actually originates from someone called Pyrrhus the Epirus, who was Greek. And apparently he defeated the Romans in this battle of Asculum. Uh, none of this I had ever heard of, mind you, and you probably haven't either. But uh, he defeated them, and, and as the story goes, he won the battle against the, the Romans, but his casualty toll was so high that he couldn't sustain future campaigns. Now, I didn't actually do any research on that particular battle or situation. I don't know if Greece was the aggressor or whether it was Rome or what it was. I'm, I'm not sure. Just knowing time and time frames, you know, it seems likely that maybe Rome was as opposed to Greece. But um, 
actually, I, I didn't even look at the date. That probably would have told me something as well. But it, it's not, doesn't matter. It's not the point. Um, also, I, as I was reading about it, um, I mean, I think we all knew, know what it means and know what it implies. Uh, but it was interesting to see what was also documented in Wikipedia as as a won the battle but lost the war kind of situation. And so a lot of them I didn't actually recognize. Some of them I recognize, but I don't I don't know if it's really, you know, tip of mind to people here on the podcast. For instance, uh, Chancellorsville in the U.S. Civil War was one of them. That's one that I'm pretty familiar with because uh, it's, it's a very famous battle, actually. It's, as the war goes, it's the one where uh, General Lee splits his army, and that's generally considered tactical suicide. But he splits his army and sends the cavalry on one side and the infantry on the other. Um, one of the reasons why it was listed as... Um, when the battle lost the war, though, is because he lost um, Stonewall Jackson in that battle. And so Jackson, I think, was widely considered one of the best tactical leaders in the South, um, including Lee as well. But, um, you know, once they started looting, losing some of those uh, motivational leaders and, and super tacticians, then it wasn't long before the resources of the North started grinding them down. Anyway, I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but <laughs> there I did. I ended up talking about it. But let's let me bring up a couple more that are probably more um, more a front of mind here. So the first one was Bunker Hill, and the reason they said won the battle, lost the war, was that, um, if you'll recall your American history, the um, British were advancing on the on the colonists in this particular battle, and the British lost many, many more troops. Now, this is another situation where, in, or likely, in theory, the British had much more in terms of resources and things than the colonists did, but they really didn't have probably the supply line to keep them um, interested. They didn't have the communications that were, you know, more real time and, and real and descriptive on what's really happening. By the time Britain could respond, it was three to six months later, you know, uh, from mail that came by ship and so forth. And so, that battle was termed as won the battle but lost the war by Great Britain because they lost so many officers and and it was sort of a turning point in the revolution. Another battle, uh, the Solomon Islands Guadalcanal in the U.S. Pacific Theater in World War II. Um, if you know your World War II history, you'll know that um, U.S pretty much got spanked early on it was it was determined that japan had superior equipment and superior tactics not only did they knock out a lot of the pacific fleet in the attack on pearl harbor but for instance the planes that were flying against um, the japanese fleet were were wildly um under under uh engineered they were slower, they were less maneuverable, they had less armament, so they were very susceptible to getting picked apart, essentially. Um, and this was a battle that ultimately the Japanese won, but the cost was so high due to the loss of aircraft carriers and battleships that um, they really couldn't recover from it. Finally, there was the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir in Korea. And this is the famous battle where the U.S. is essentially surrounded by the Chinese forces or Chinese-backed Koreans, if you will. And um, 
somehow, some way, the Americans um, stuck it to them, essentially, and survived. They survived to retreat. And this is why Korea, North Korea, won the battle. But they lost the war in terms of they they took such heavy casualties that um, they were essentially from that point forward getting their butt kicked up beyond the the um, DMZ line that exists currently and essentially brokered the ceasefire as a result of that. And so um, those were three that I thought were sort of um, memorable and recognizable to people from the um, Wikipedia article. So based on that, I think that what we don't collectively seem to realize is that we seem to look at issues, especially geopolitical issues, with a very single issue filter. And so uh, I was reading another article not long, maybe it was the day before I was reading this one, saying that the withdrawal of France from Africa was a warning sign to America. And I'm always interested. I'm interested in what other countries are doing in terms of foreign policy, especially when it comes to sort of dark continents like Africa, where we really don't see a lot of news from Africa. I mean, the countries around the the Caribbean, like the flood in, in Libya or the earthquake in Morocco, yeah, but... As far as what's happening in interior Africa or, or the southern part of Africa, I have no idea. Um, I know I knew that France had an influence there, but I didn't know to what extent. I know they're all at least autonomous countries. I don't I don't really know what's going on. So I was interested to read that article. And essentially the crux of it was that the indigenous people or citizens of those countries were growing tired of European colonialism. Now, I would say after about, you know, 100 years, probably more like 120 years now, I mean, who can't blame them? But (laughs) apparently, and the story didn't go into really how deep they they were in these countries but france that is but um apparently you know the there's uh discontent over the amount of influence that france has in those countries and they're and and they even made the point to say that france made concessions in recent decades to turn over more power to these countries to make them more autonomous and um, they were saying that it was still not enough for the population of um, locals. The article did make a point of saying that there were still some uh, French troops remaining and never fear the U.S. has started backing them up with weapons and consultants and so on and so forth. So what is the warning sign? I'm not entirely sure other than maybe you might say stability um, in these former French colonies of Africa is uh, growing less and less stable. But it also could be uh, never fear the United States is here to make sure that um, everything is going to be all right. Right. I, I, I didn't get that. Um, I think it's probably more the sense of instability than than the other. But um, anyway, that's what the article article said. And so, you know, when we read that or at least when I read that as Americans or I, as I read that as being written for Americans, for our audience, um. I think the filter that's applied towards um, foreign diplomacy and and strong arming, even though that's really lumped into the issue of diplomacy, is um, you know th- there's a single filter that's applied, and that's that everyone wants to be like us. So I'm speaking primarily about politics and culture, but you can find lots of people that 
um, want women's equality and fair and transparent elections in those countries. And that's who we hear from, right? Because they either apply for asylum or they have a platform that they use to get this information out. Um, you know, and so that's what we hear from. But I think you can bet that there's a lot of people that don't feel that way as well. And hence, that's why the, the, um, unrest happens, right? Is that somebody else's idea of what they should look like has been applied on them. And then when that starts to change because the population, um, doesn't recognize those values, then all of a sudden now the platforms are endorsing these, um, dissenters and, um, everybody says, Oh, look at how terrible it is. Right. But I also think you can also find a lot of people in these, I'll call them third world countries that, um, will pretty much say whatever they think they want you to hear at the time. And so when you go into Afghanistan and you appoint this guy like Karzai and you say, you want uh, democracy, right? Oh yes, of course we do. We want democracy. And, um, why do you want democracy? Because you're going to make me rich doing it. Right. Um, was he a, you know, was he a good guy? Um, I think by all accounts, not. Uh, and so, you know, were they better under ISIS or were they better under a dirt bag? It's kind of like, um, Gaddafi. If you remember the 1980s, um, you'll remember that the United States issued an airstrike against Libya and it was written about profusely in the media. I remember Time Magazine and Newsweek and newspapers and it was on the news and it was, you know, what's going to happen is this war, blah, blah, blah. Now that's a pretty common policy for the United States. The difference is we don't use, we didn't use F-14s like they did back then with real pilots and in real risk. They use drones to basically assassinate these people anytime they have some sort of political disagreement with them. Well, um, I can remember, so that happened in the mid 1980s. I want to say around the time Top Gun came out and I can remember in the mid to late 1990s reading an article in National Geographic about how wonderful Libya was because Gaddafi was, um, in charge now, what I don't, I don't think what they were actually saying was that Gaddafi was a good guy. I think what they were saying was, is that Gaddafi brought stability to Libya, no matter what kind of strong arm, arm tactics that they used. Now, they didn't say that in the National Geographic article, but they were alluding to how the economy was flourishing and people were doing better. And that's the truth. And that's, uh, where we're going to eventually end up here today is that stability rules over any form of government. And um, I'm going to talk about that here next, because if we look at the, I'll, I'll call it the proliferation of gangs as an example, as a crack in our shining city, why do gangs prosper? If you ask yourself that question. Because they prosper because they do things that others don't. And despite all the bad things they do, they also do good things. And that's what keeps them basically around. Now, you can imagine, and we're all, I think, somewhat familiar of, of gangs and gang code and all that. And, the, you know, they initially, maybe they initially form to perform some sort of function like, uh, um, trafficking narcotics, right? Well, you don't, you, they don't exist or operate in a vacuum, right? They operate within the real world and the real world has all forms of gray, not just black and white. So in order for them to traffic narcotics, they need to have all kinds of people involved in this, right? And once the people are involved, one, not only are they guilty of doing these things, but also 
they're complicit in basically allowing it to happen. But why would they do that, right? They would do that because it benefits them in some way. It may be economic, but it also may be that, you know, they um, get some other things like protection of their neighborhood out of it, right? Um, I think that most civil people would probably agree that, you know, gang style government is, is probably not the best, probably not the most peaceful and likely not the best, uh, type of, of government, but it's fear-based ruling and in association to that. And, and I think that that's true. But I also think there's something more Machiavellian going on here. And um, if you're not familiar with Machiavellian government or descriptor, right, you can basically boil it down to the ends justify the means. And so the gang's argument to this is, is that, yes, we traffic narcotics, that brings in money. Look at how poor our economy is, but you know what we do with that money? We we build schools and educate kids and provide health care and all these other things that they actually do do um, because no one else is doing it, or at least no one else is doing it properly or doing it to the scale that it needs to be done to address the problems within their community. Now they're not, you know, they're not in this to build community by any means, but community is a byproduct of them being in the business of trafficking narcotics. That's what makes it so difficult to get rid of. I think that we need to take off our rose colored glasses here and and really try to put ourselves in someone else's position. I think it's extremely difficult for us to imagine, and I'm saying us as Americans and me myself, that there's really that we really have nothing and have no hope, right? That we live in abject poverty on a day-to-day basis in that um, there's, you know, there's no guarantee for tomorrow. When I go to bed at night, I go to bed because I'm pretty sure I'm going to wake up tomorrow. At least I do right now. Um, and I think that in, in a lot of these cases with a lot of these countries, they don't necessarily feel the same way. And so, um, you know, when, when the offer looks better on the other side, regardless of the risks, it's human nature to take that deal, if you will, that the gangs are going to offer you. You know, and it may be something as simple as, you know, when the cops come along, you don't say you know me, or you don't say you've seen this, or you don't say this happened, right? That's all there is to it. It's not saying that they're involved in the trafficking, it's that they're uh, complicit in what's going on, right? And they're doing that for their own benefits. So I think if we stand back and take a broader look at at the question here, right, is either we don't get the concept or we just don't care. Um, I'm honestly hard-pressed to understand what the problem is, but I wanted to take a look at, at conflicts since World War II and analyze those. And, and what I'm really getting at here is, is the basest part of what is the benefit to the common citizen here in the United States for being involved in these conflicts. I think that, you know, there's arguments to be made for instance, that the world that the U.S. had no business in World War One. Um, I think that when you study the history of World War One, you look and see that United States had clearly taken a side. They were backing the Great Britain and the in the Allies in that particular war, and that by doing that, they were um, enticing the. Um, I don't. They weren't called. Uh, Axis, but they were enticing the Germans and the German allies to fight against them. So, surprise, the Lusitania got sank, but 
you know what? It also had a whole bunch of arms on it that it wasn't supposed to have. Well, that created a bunch of fake outrage, right? I mean, this is very similar to the sinking of the USS Maine in the harbor of Cuba, right? The United States was itching for a reason to go after Spain, to conquer Cuba and anything else they could get their hands on. And so, well, lo and behold, Spain just blew up a United States naval ship in the Havana Harbor. 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 So, uh, same with the Lusitania. Boy, there was a lot of innocent people on there, but so were the arms that were destined for Great Britain in uh, a stance of neutrality that the United States had issued. Neutrality doesn't mean you don't get shot at. It means you're not taking part in either side, including providing arms, right? And so, um, you know, you could even say that the United States was bait, was baiting Japan into attacking it. We're going to put these sanctions on them for steel and fuel. Um, we're going to essentially cut off their lifeline and leaving them, I think, but the way they would phrase it is leaving them with no real options other than to attack the United States because it was either that or slowly die a slowly strangled to death, right? And so, um, but if you look at, I mean, most people think that World War II was a just war and the reasons for it being, one, we were attacked by the Japanese without provocation, mind you even though we were provoking them, just it just wasn't very visible. And, you know, in, in hindsight, we found out that the Germans were nasty people, or at least the, Ger- the Third Reich, the Nazis were. And so they did a lot, of th- a lot of naughty things, right, including genocide. And so um, we use that, that past tense to color our opinion about whether or not that war was was a good war for us to be in and you know i mean i'm not going to debate that right now but i i think that you just need to be a little bit more considerate with um the history of things to really uh come to the conclusion of good guy bad guy here right i mean Clearly, we weren't the bad guys, but but also clearly we weren't um, innocent either. And so um, if you're not innocent, does that make you a good guy? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to talk about ties here coming up in a minute, so you can make up your own decision. But you'll probably know where I stand after I get done talking about it. So. Uh, so we either don't care or we, we don't know what's going on or we don't care. I think there's some of both in there, to be honest. Um, and I think it's just part of our, uh, our culture and our breeding, right? I mean, everyone has a bit of, uh, nationality, nationalism in them, um, where they're, they think that their country is the best for some reason because they were born there and grew up there. But, um, anyway, let's look at the, let's look at the issues here. So Korea, now, um, I just want to say that you know, we've, we've been in a ceasefire since 1953. So this is really an active war that's in a ceasefire. Um, clearly the two, two countries have not united. Clearly there's differences between the two sides. And, um, I think, I think it would be hard pressed to say that we won the war because honestly, where did we start and where did it end? Right. We started with one Korea and we compromised on a DMZ that essentially built two countries. So did we win or did they win? Right. I don't think they did because now they, if, if you had people in the North and you were in the South or vice versa, then you're cut off from these, these people never to be seen again or even communicated with again. Right. And so um, the fact that we push them above the, the DMZ line, um, yes, that's a tactical victory of sorts, but um, it's not a win because it's, it's still a divided country with an active conflict. Um, the next conflict after that t- deemed war was Vietnam. 
and the last American evacuated from Saigon was 1975. We didn't win that war. We didn't quite lose it, right? We, but we didn't win it. We quit. We left. We evacuated. We said, the cost isn't worth it. Let's go. Um, and so then we had the next war after that was the Gulf War. Gulf War One, as it's commonly called now. Did we win? Well, we technically won. I mean, if you look at how the the conflict played out, we tactically destroyed Saddam Hussein and his army, pushed them out of Kuwait, forced to surrender. Um, but again, um, it's my opinion that the the failure to to really get adequate surrender terms or proper nation rebuilding is really what led us into the second front when when we had the war on terror i mean i'm not going to mince words i think that all of the weapons of mass destruction and all that stuff even at the time i thought this was bunk and i felt like that this was justification for george w bush to avenge what george h Herbert Walker, H.W. Bush, uh, didn't complete, right? They tactically destroyed them, but they didn't annihilate them, right? They didn't uh, depose Saddam Hussein. They didn't fundamentally change Iraq. And so, um, you know, I don't even really know why Iraq was in Kuwait. That seemed like a pretty stupid thing to do for him, but... Um, you know, I'll say we won that, but, but winning with the, with the benefit of hindsight really leaves us more with more questions than answers, because I don't think that we would have had, we would have gone in there on the war on terror if we had completely won the war. But okay, I'll give you that one. Now let's go to the latest one, right? Which is the war on terror. It's essentially a war without a set theater. Um, you can say it was Afghanistan. You can say that um, it it spanned multiple nation states, right? Because at one time we had hot war in Afghanistan, hot war in Iraq, and um, we were even losing that one, <laughs> to be honest. But we had to have a, quote, surge, right? And so the surge was to uh, to augment and really take it seriously to win, if you will. Um, but this ended up to be another Vietnam. We didn't win. We quit again. Uh, we evacuated um, the... We evacuated Afghanistan in 2020 under the newly elected president, Biden. But the plans were already underway under Trump. And so um, I'm not going to necessarily give him credit for that policy. Um, but but it, again, it was a failed conflict. We didn't subdue the enemy. We didn't fundamentally change. In fact, can we honestly say that Afghanistan is better today than it was then? And I think not. So, uh, so there you go. There's four conflicts since World War II, the last just war, three of which we lost, one of which has a questionable um, victory associated with it. And so, you know, what I'm trying to paint the picture here is, is that what is the actual value of us being involved in these things, right? If we're not going to win, then what value is it for us? And I think, uh, I, I mean, I have some opinions on that. I, I'm not going to answer that question today because I think that is a whole deeper subject all in of itself. But, um, you know, I guess I want to move on from that and talk about, you know, it's not just wars that, that we've been involved with. I mean, there's a defined period for Korea, Vietnam, the Gulf War One, and even now the the War on Terror. But if you look at the time frame from the 40s to 2020s, 
2020, the final evacuation from Afghanistan, that's a period of, uh, what, 55, 75 years. And most of that, a lot of that has been in conflict. If you consider Vietnam running from 59 to 75, you consider the war on terror running from 2001 to 2020, that's 19 years there and uh, 16 years with Vietnam. The other two were significantly shorter, but still. Um, what I'm trying to say is that this, that wasn't the only time the United States was in conflict. The United States has essentially been in, in constant conflict since World War II. And I'm just going to name a couple that... Um, you may be more familiar with, right? So uh, we had the Bay of Pigs failed invasion and the failure to stave off the communist revolution of Cuba that happened in the 1950s. I didn't look up the date on that. It would have been the late 50s that 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 happened. Um, You know, and the communist revolution took over the island, kicked the United States out, sour relationships every sense um i haven't looked recently but i i do think that there is some limited amount of ability to go there but uh, it's a political football right you have on one hand the constituents that are pretty bitter about um leaving cuba and then on the other hand you have the people that are um wanting to do more but um need to consider their their constituents and so all right, uh, Nicaragua in the 1980s. Actually, it started in 79. The final straw, I think, was in 1990. So again, um, 12 years of the U.S. meddling in Nicaragua. Did you know that the U.S. intervention led to the proliferation of crack cocaine in Southern California? The very... Uh, introduction of crack cocaine in California came via the CIA and this was the US policymakers turning a blind eye to the Contras who was the side that we were backing in this civil war permitted them to run drugs and even in some cases did it for them in LA in order to fund their fight against the Sandinistas can you believe that can you believe that our own country addicted people and caused pain in order to advance, of its citizens, in order to advance political agenda? You probably could if you believe the stories of the Tuskegee Airmen and, you know, other such things of, of similar ilk. But, I mean, this is the 1980s now we're talking, right? This was a conflict that also ended in ceasefire, but... You know, we were down there arming and consulting and doing all this nonsense as well as running drugs for this. The whole reason, and I remember I was in fifth grade when this was really probably in its zenith. Um, The whole reason for being there was this, again, this was a proxy war for the United States against uh, the Soviet Union and Cuba in trying to stop or stave off communism and say, basically saying thou shalt not proceed any further on North American soil. Um, we'll stop you here. But the tactics that were used were clearly were dubious, right? Um, and so I remember being in uh, fifth grade and going, if we don't stop the communists here, there's no, there's nothing stopping them, you know, from marching all the way up through Mexico. And pretty soon there'll be a hot war on our border and blah, blah, blah. Right. Of course, hindsight now being 2020, um, they weren't as passionate about, uh, stopping it apparently as we were. But, um, my point with that is, is that there, here you have a major conflict going on on our own continent that's being sponsored and assisted by the United States government. Now, one last one, and I know there's more. I thought about more, but I didn't do any research on them per se. The last one I'm going to bring up is the Arab Spring 
2012. Uh, hopefully everyone is old enough to remember that that's involved in listening here, but um, you may not have quite the insight that I have, right? If we recall what was happening, this was um, Obama as president and the news media. So, well, before I get there, this was termed, the Arab Spring was termed as this social media, organic movement, social justice, you know, of these poor people are tired of having despots rule their country. We're going to riot and we're going to have a revolution and we're going to overthrow them and we're going to have a new government that's so much more benevolent to us. That's the way the um, Arab Spring was, was painted, right? Essentially, there were revolutions in some countries, Libya and Syria being two of them. Egypt had a change of government without revolution. And if you look at a map, when you look at the Wikipedia article on the Arab Spring, you'll see that it pretty much encompassed almost every nation in northern Africa and the Middle East. Now, I guess what I want to say is, do you believe that this was this was just a social media, social justice occurrence. I sure don't. Um, I, yeah, I'm, you bet that I believe that the United States had a heavy hand in this, right? Um, even from the standpoint of Obama saying how great it was that they were going to have democracy and that, you know, they deserved all this and all this garbage, right? Um, you know, I learned recently, probably about a year ago, as I was reading some of these articles, that the United States has a command office, a military command office for Africa. Now, you tell me, what business do they have in there? We don't have any territory in Africa. Um, You know, I think they could have managed everything they needed to manage with... Afghanistan from the theaters and the allies that were already there, but this isn't going to end, right? I mean, uh, you can bet that this African Strategic Command is involved in whatever is going on with the the French and the French former colonies. And so, my point has been: not only have we had constant war, but we've also had constant meddling since World War II. I mean, I didn't bring it up, but, you know, there was a deposition of Manuel Noriega in Panama. There was the invasion of Grenada. There was, um, you know, all kinds of operations on the war on drugs and all these games that are being played to uh, make us look like the good guy, right? And what it's really causing the um, all the angst and anger against the United States. Okay, so um, I also, I I did look up uh, Iran too, and I I think Iran was uh, somewhat of a result of that too in 1979. But I didn't have conclusive proof of U.S. operations. So, all right, moving on here. So, you know, I think that the, U- the United States is, is clearly are arguably the best at winning tactical engagements. I think the weapons strategies, technology, all that is superior to anyone. I, you know, I think they're superior to to our closest rival, which would be Russia probably. Um, And, you know, we just have different ideas about how to go about things. Russia is just going to throw everything into the meat grinder and see if they outlast you versus we're going to use use um, tactical strategic strikes and things but we both have the bomb so uh, it probably would never come to that Uh, so but anyway arguably the u.s is is the best at winning tactical engagements but i think when we look at things we are the great britain of 1773 that's who we are even militarily right we have the best military We're the strongest, but we're selfish, we're tone deaf, and we're narcissistic. And so we don't bother to understand the issues or dynamics, or at least that's how it looks on the surface. 
I actually think it's even more sinister than that. I, I don't think that we really care to look at those issues. And, and the reason is, is because it doesn't matter, you know, what somebody in Somalia thinks, right? It's really about me and what I want and what I'm going to take. And so if, if they have to live the way they have to live, then that so be it. Um, you know, we collectively, we can't put ourselves in the position of others. You know, I talked a little bit about the, the flood that happened in Libya a couple weeks ago. And, um, you know, I mean, it's really, it's a headline. If that were to happen somewhere else, we might have a different feeling about it. Right. But the fact that it's in this country, that's, we have sort of, um, a contentious relationship at, at least at times with means we can't even empathize with the tragedy that's, that's been there. We think that if we just keep pushing that eventually they'll see the light and, and, you know, I know they don't get this now, but, um, you know, as long as we're here and keep going, then eventually they'll figure out how wonderful democracy is. But if you think about it, this is really evil what's going on. And I say that because the United States is trying to manipulate other countries into doing our will. And they're doing that in the most insidious it's wrapped, right? And it's wrapped in the most insidious paper of for your benefit, right? I'm saving your money for your benefit. You know, I think if <laughs> to take a page out of popular history or popular culture, you know, you could say um, Britney Spears' father was managing her career for her benefit because she was not able to do so herself. Now, is it really for her benefit? Would she really agree to that? Did Afghanistan really agree to that? Or did they just say, okay, well, this is, you know, the new Russian conflict. Or, okay, I'm going to make money on XYZ supplying logistics to the United States military. Or, as soon as they're gone, then we'll just uh, have things go back to normal. You know, I mean... This is what's going on here is that you're being told that, you know, backing these rebels in Somalia is a good thing. When in reality, we don't, we have no idea what's a good thing because we don't bother to know what's going on in Somalia. We don't bother to know what it's like to be Somalian. Surely, I think taxation, excessive taxation is probably not a good thing. But again, I don't know all the details. So I'm not about to really throw my lot in with a bunch of rebels that the CIA has uh, backed and trained. I mean, Osama bin Laden, anyone, right? I mean, there you go. So I want to end with solutions here. What can we do about with this information and the situation. And, you know, I mean, I think the first thing I always say is in your programming, but I think, you know, you got to go a little deeper than that. You got to be skeptical when you read the good news about Somali rebels, because what's good about it, right? I mean, in the end, you still have people doing bad things. And whether you're a good guy or a bad guy, I'm sure there's people getting caught in the middle of this. That's not good. So, you know, I, th I think part and parcel with that is we can't dwell too much in getting educated. And what I mean by getting educated is spending too much time reading the news and reading these stories. And they just suck you into a side situation that you can't win you eventually end up probably siding with one side or the other depending on the tone and and how you got there and then pretty soon you have an opinion that's you know counter to somebody's right and so um you know i'm not going to say that i don't i don't read the news i do of course clearly i i read this story um clearly it spurned me on to make this podcast and so 
I do check the news several times a day, but I don't, it's not, you know, uni-focused on what the Democrats did wrong, you know, with, um, oh, the, the senator from New Jersey or representative from New Jersey that's going through his trials and tribulations now. I mean, yeah, he's a dirtbag. So are 99% of all the politicians out there. Someone that I thought I liked, and, and this is the danger, right? <laughs> it turns out that, uh, oh, by the way, this person is having an affair with someone for years and years and years, and it's common knowledge. It's like, what? Here I thought, you know, someone that at least stood up for things and talked about family values and blah, blah, blah. And now all of a sudden they're having an affair. I mean, that's BS, right? So you can't trust any of them. I guess that's what I'm taking out of it anyway. But, you know, I do read the news, but I also read sports and weather stories and entertainment and, and opinions. And sometimes I click on fashion articles because I'm like, what kind of nonsense is this? And, you know, it's just... I don't get sucked into it. It's just more about being educated on what's going on rather than uh, supporting my bias, right? And and I do feel like it's part of my responsibility to stay up on things so that I can produce podcasts like this, right? Um, I th- I would say that, you know, even if you do, um, avoid those stories that are like, Fox News ragging on Democrats and CNN ragging on Republicans. Um, I'm not opposed to reading opposing opinions. I think if, you know, if you're going to do anything, read something that's clearly stated as an opinion. And there are, at least for my news sources, oftentimes it says opinion colon something, you know, title. Um, so you know it's an opinion, but when you have news that's wrapped up as an opinion or hit piece on something, that makes it a little less likely that you're going to go into it with an open mind, right? And so um, I would say be be politically informed and active at your own risk. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to tell you to do something that I'm not doing, uh, like reading the news, because I'm going to continue to do that. But I think where the line stops is I'm doing it to sort of be aware of what's going on. And I think too many people take it too far and pretty soon they're on Facebook. They're posting idiots this and doing that and, you know, and just doing things that really don't make any difference, right? I don't think you're going to sway anyone by by posting stuff on Facebook. I'm not going to change my opinion and I'm pretty sure you're not going to change yours if I did that, right? Um, so so do it at your own risk and do it with moderation and do it with an open mind. Uh, after you end your programming, uh, next step is really do what matters. You know, generally speaking, we can't change anything in Somalia. So even if I got all hyped up on America and wanted to, you know, wave the flag and do all the things, it doesn't do anything, right? I mean, people can, I'm not saying you couldn't do anything. You could pack up your life, go to Somalia, and maybe be an aid worker, right? Or try to make some changes there, right? That's doing something, and that would be doing something based on something that you read. But most people aren't doing that. And outrage or celebration is doing nothing. Adding a flag to your profile, um, patrolling or defending subversive policies, those don't do anything. They don't change anyone's mind. They don't make it better for Somalis. They don't make it better for us Americans. And so doing what matters is, is doing something that improves your life today. And it's something that you can control. So instead of spending an hour reading articles from Breitbart or whatever your bias is, right, to, to make you feel good that you've picked the right side, go do something. Build something. Heck, even read a romance novel. That would be better than, you know, just getting nothing out of this. It would be better use of time. And so 
Um, it gives you control because it gives you power over your thoughts and, and ultimately your happiness then, right? It's also productive and entertaining. So, you know, I think a lot of people would say, well, reading the news might be enter- is entertaining to me. Well, maybe. And if that's your hobby, I guess, okay. But I think most people like to get outraged by it. They love to live in outrage and they love to point out, oh, see, my side's better. Even with that article about Somalia, right? Some good news because the Somalis are really kicking it to ISIS now, right? And so um, I think you're better off really doing something that matters. As I conclude here, I'm just going to draw an analogy. And so, you know, as Americans, we've embraced the sports of baseball, basketball, and football. Um, some of the other sports that are, I'll say they're popular, but I wouldn't call them either uniquely American or u- ubiquitously American are sports like so- soccer and hockey. And I think one of the reasons why is that Americans identify with the concepts of winning and losing. Uh, ties just don't register, right? So, We've told ourselves, oh, we could have won Vietnam if we wanted to. We could have won Afghanistan if we wanted to. We could have won Korea if we wanted to. But we tied, or at least we gave up. And by giving up, you can't say you won. So if you can't say you lost and you can't say you won, then what did you really do? You tied. And I just don't think ties actually register adequately with our American psyche. So we've lied to ourselves and said, oh yeah, we haven't lost a war since, since World War II, right? Or we haven't ever lost a war. Maybe the War of 18, no, we didn't lose that one. We have never lost a war, but we have lost wars. We just have lied to ourselves that we haven't, right? And so I... The fo- football is the one sport that <laughs> that stands out because people are screaming. You can have a tie in football. You sure can. You can have a tie in football. But the rules are really skewed towards not having a tie. If we could have ties, like soccer, then we would not have an extra overtime period, right, where teams are given a chance to win. And so, um, you know, do ties occasionally happen? Yeah, maybe there's one or two every season or every couple of seasons there's some ties. But generally speaking, the rules are set, created, so that there will be a winner. And and usually these ties are for teams that are just two anemic teams that can't find their way to a win <laughs> or very easily, right? So... Yes, I mean, I I recognize football maybe the the um, the redheaded stepchild of the three from that standpoint, but ties are so rare that you might as well say, and and no one really ever goes for a tie; they go for a win, and if they happen to tie, then that's the way it is. But ties in global politics and global political conflict are as good as losses, right? You didn't accomplish something. You may have uh, may have kept the status quo. May have, because it depends on the form of why this was happening in the first place. And so, um, a win in Somalia is only worth so much, right? What What is the good news here? I th- I quite frankly think that the bad news is that we still have a war on terror going on. We have something happening something dangerous, something geopolitical that we don't even really know about. And ultimately, I predict this good news, this victory to be short-lived. I I just don't see Somalia turning it around. I don't, this isn't a show about answers for Somalia and, and these other places. I don't know because I don't understand the problems. But I think the problems are probably self-induced to some degree. And I don't know that they can be changed. I hate to say that, but um, this this is why I'm against being over there in the first place. Because 
I don't see this going well for us. I just see it as another place where the military industrial complex can rake in some money and maybe even a useful diversion in case something happens. But um, are we going to change Somalia? I doubt it. So hopefully that's not a downer, but, uh, you know, I mean, that's just the way that I see it. And so um, with that, this has been Brandon at Alta4.co. You can find my podcasts on a few players now. I, I podcast on castbox.fm. The RSS feed is on Spotify, and now it's on Apple Podcasts. Uh, from what I've heard from other people, I don't know. The, the answer was, I don't know how it got there. It's just always been there. So I don't know if it will eventually propagate to other platforms or whether I have to help it along. But those are the three that I know of for sure that are that I'm active on. And um, if you want to contact me for feedback or topics or you hate me <laughs> in my stance, Brandon at altf4.co is my email address and I will wrap it up here. So remember to end your programming and do things that matter. <laughs>